It's great to see you here this morning that uh, you have not left on spring break yet, like most of a uh, significant portion of our congregation. Perhaps you don't even get a spring break. That's okay. We're glad that you're here this morning worshiping with us. If you would like to borrow a Bible to follow along with us this morning, go ahead and raise your hand and the ushers will uh, let you borrow a Bible so that you can follow along with us. As you, about a week ago, we finished up our prelude to revival, which was uh, six days, morning and night, of preaching and in the Word and praying. It was an unbelievable time, and we want to, of course, keep that going, what we learned that week. Uh, one of the ways we're going to do this is after Easter in our ethos communities, these are kind of like our small groups, we're going to be talking about continuous revival. So if you're not in an ethos community, I want to encourage you to um, jump in one and experience the life of our church. One of the cool things that week uh, is we had 12 different preachers preach uh, 12 uh, different sermons. And what's really neat is that all those preachers were pretty much homegrown, which means they're, they're developed and raised up and they're from our congregation. And what is, what is a big blessing to me is just to see so many gifted uh, men of God bringing the word. But as, as awesome as they were, we couldn't include all the preachers. We, we still have more than that. And this morning is an opportunity to introduce you once again to a, another great preacher, part of this congregation. His name is uh, Jeremy Childs. He's an intern on our staff and is a, a great man of God. If you know him, he has a wonderful pastoral heart as he leads his ethos community. He's married to a wonderful woman, Elizabeth, who make a, a great, compassionate power couple for the Lord. He is finishing up Trinity uh, this spring and hopes to move into full-time pastoral ministry. So I'm encouraged to bring Jeremy up here to bring the word to you this morning. Come on, Jeremy. The sermon title this morning is How to Stage a Revolution. Maybe you haven't thought about that in a while. We've lived in freedom for so long. Who thinks about these things? I want to take you back a couple of years. January 25th, 2011. Hundreds of thousands of protesters gather in Tahir Square in Cairo. They gather to demand the overthrow of an oppressive government. President Mohammed Mubarak had been in power for nearly 30 years. From January 25th until February 11th, over that 17-day span, people continued to gather and to speak out against him. And finally, it ended in the resignation of President Mubarak. Now, this revolt is hailed as one of the most successful Nonviolent revolts in history. In many ways, it's a paragon of nonviolent resistance, a nonviolent revolution, except for the 846 protesters who were brutally murdered by the police and the more than 1,600 who were injured in that same revolt. Nonviolent revolution. God, thinks, God does things a little bit different. I want to take you back under the 3,000 years before that. Another revolt took place in Egypt. You can read about this revolt in the first 15 chapters of Exodus. Think about that event for a moment. Amidst all the displays of the power of God, amidst all the supernatural events, Moses' staff turning into a snake, the Nile turning to blood, the Red Sea parting, amidst all of that, what I want to propose to you, what the real miracle of that event is, is that the Hebrew slave population gained its freedom from their Egyptian overloads, overlords without a single death. Every single Hebrew man, woman, and child walked out of Egypt. And they were expelled. They were pushed out of Egypt. 
And they gave them their money. The Egyptians gave them their money. You take our money and leave. What kind of revolt is that? That's a true miracle. God does things a bit differently. Today we're going to look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This passage has often been titled, The Triumphal Entry. And in a way it is triumphal, but I think the triumph is a bit unexpected. Because if you think about it, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And by the end of the week, he's going to be executed on a cross. What kind of triumph is this? Well, I think if we understand that God does things differently, we can see what kind of king he is. This passage is about Jesus as king. But what we have to ask is, what kind of king is he? So what we're going to do is work through the passage and ask this question. And we'll see if we can find out what kind of king Jesus intends to be. Um, Before we jump in to our passage, um, it's helpful to know John 12 comes at the end of Jesus' public ministry. For the first 11 chapters of John, he's performing all these public signs. Uh, For example, in chapter 9, he opens the eyes of a blind man. This is an expression of his authority and power, not just over physical sight, but over spiritual sight as well. So he's doing all these signs, all these signs that point to who he is. And we get to John chapter 11, and this is the most significant sign for our purposes today. In John chapter 11, most of you are probably very familiar with it, it's the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And it's a story, I just want to point out a few things. It's very ironic. Think about it. First, Jesus risks his life to travel to see a dead man. And then Jesus raises this dead man to life, and as a result of that action, Jesus' life is put at risk. They want to kill him now. But not only is Jesus' life threatened, news of this now living, formerly dead man, spreads out over all the city to the point where the religious authorities are embarrassed by this testimony. And they want to put the now living, formerly dead man back to death (laughs) if they could figure out a way to keep him dead. So this this event, uh, this raising of Lazarus, this giving life to Lazarus, is an important backdrop to the triumphal entry that we're going to look at today. This is an event that divides people. Some people see it, and they recognize Jesus, and they believe in Jesus. Other people see it, and they want to see Jesus dead. So John is giving us a picture, not merely of Jesus, this powerful wonder worker, but of Jesus, the one who speaks with authority, even over the power of death. So we're going to pick up in John chapter 12. We're going to start reading with verse 12. If you want to follow along with me. John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. 
So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, like the Greeks, we wish to see Jesus. Help us to see him today. Help us to see him rightly. Help us to see the significance of that. And we pray that your spirit would be with us today, working in our hearts and helping us to see, and that you'd be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sets the stage for these events. Like I said, this event follows the raising of Lazarus. As we see, many of the people who come out to see Jesus do so because they heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They come out to see this dead guy. So we're meant to consider the events of chapter 12 in light of the events of chapter 11. So this crowd that comes to meet him, they've assembled for this feast. And if we see, if we look in verse 1, 12 chapter 1, we can see this is a Passover feast. Passover feast was one of the feasts that Israelite males were commanded to go to. So it was a well-attended. People would come in, travel from all over. One ancient historian said that Jerusalem could swell to as many as 2 million people during this feast. So quite a bit of people were there. I don't know if all of those people came out to see him, but even if a portion of that crowd came out to see Jesus, there's a significant crowd that comes out to meet him. And as they come out to greet him, they're quoting from Psalm 118, which was read this morning. They're saying, save us, which is what Hosanna means. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And they wave palm branches at him. And you've had palm branches waved at you this morning. I bet you'd like to know what that means. I don't know if it means the same thing today as then. But uh, at this point, it's going to be helpful to know a little bit of the history of the Jewish state. About 200 years before the events in chapter 12, about 200 years before Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, Judea was controlled by the Seleucid kingdom. So in 167 BC, a band of Jewish brothers, they start a revolt against the Seleucids. And over the course of the next three years, these Jewish brothers, these Maccabean brothers, along with a small Jewish army, they engage in guerrilla-style warfare against the Seleucids. In three years' time, they're actually able to reclaim Jerusalem and cleanse the temple. And this is the event which is commemorated by the Jewish festival of Hanukkah every year. Nearly 15 years after that, they're able to achieve complete political independence. Simon Maccabeus was the leader when they achieved that independence. He was a political liberator. When he came to Jerusalem on the eve of independence, the Jewish people came out to welcome him with music and celebration and with praise and with palm branches. So we have to ask, what's with the palm branches? Well, the palm branches are a sign of victory. And it almost borders on this nationalistic symbol if you think about it, if we were to celebrate uh, our independence today, if we were to go to a 4th of July parade, you would see people all over with the American flag, which stands first as a sign of victory in the Revolutionary War, and then becomes almost a symbol of our nationalism, and a symbol of pride in our country. We see 
a similar thing in Revelation, if you want to see it, um, in Revelation 7. You don't need to turn there. But the, this great multitude that assembles before the Lamb, praising Him, waving palm branches as a sign of His victory. So Simon Maccabeus receives this welcome into Jerusalem. He receives a king's welcome. And he promptly goes to this fortress where there's still Seleucid troops stationed, this last symbol of foreign control, of foreign oppression. He lays siege to it and drives them out. And for the next almost 80 years, Judea is a politically independent country. Now, to put this into historical perspective to help us out, Jesus um, and his contemporaries are looking back on this event um, roughly the same as we would look back on the Civil War. It's, it's roughly the same amount of time in the past, and it's, it's about as significant of, of an event. It's just a, a looming event um, that everybody's familiar with, that everybody remembers. So if we come back to John 12, Jesus is welcomed into the city with praises and with palms. He's receiving the welcome of a king. What we have to ask is what kind of king will he be? Here's what I think he should have done. He's got, even if half of the crowd is with him, say he's got a million people with him, he should have gone into Jerusalem, should have laid siege to the fortress that's there. It's a different fortress, but it serves the same purpose, a symbol of Roman oppression at this time. Laid siege to the fortress, and with these people, start a revolution. That's not what he did. That's what the Pharisees expected him to do. You can see it in chapter 11, verse 48, where the Pharisees, they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place, that's our temple, They're going to take away both our temple and our nation. He doesn't do that. Instead, John tells us that he looks for a donkey. Look in verse 14, 12, 14. Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Some people have said if Jesus intended to come as a political liberator at this point, he would have rode into Jerusalem on a war horse, so maybe that's true. But instead, he comes in on a donkey to symbolize that that's not his plan at the present time. I think that that's probably true, but I think maybe there's something a little more going on here as well. And the reason I think that is because John tells us that Jesus sits on a donkey in order to fulfill these Old Testament expectations for the coming of the delivering one, the deliverer. He quotes one passage from Zechariah and he alludes to one, uh, at least one other Old Testament passage we're going to take a look at. Now, before we do, um, I I think when John is quoting these, he's not just uh, looking at words that are similar and matching those up and bringing it in. I think he's really understanding the context of the Old Testament passage and he's applying that to Jesus. Um, so the first one um, that I'll just read to you comes from Zechariah 9, starting in verse 9. And the prophet says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, 
and from the river to the ends of the earth. In context, Zechariah 9 is a promise of the coming king who will bring peace. He says that instruments of war like the chariot and the war horse and the bow are going to be done away with. But this is a peace that he's bringing not just for Jerusalem. He will speak peace to the nations. There's a global scope, a global significance to his coming. And if you think back to John 12, these palm branch-waving patriots, they welcome Jesus because they have political aspirations, they have political hopes. But it's as if John is pointing us to this Old Testament passage to say, no, no, you need to think bigger than that. It's bigger than that. Your political agenda is too small. There's a second passage that others have suggested may be in view here, and I think they might be as well. And this comes from Zephaniah 3.14 and following. Zephaniah 3.14, and I'll read this aloud to you. The prophet says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with a loud singing. This passage, again, is a passage of hope and restoration. Here, however, it's very clearly God himself, the Lord who is visiting his people. He is the mighty one who will save his people. He's in their very presence. And that is why the writer says, fear not. And I think that's what John picks up on. Fear not, Zion. When God visits his people, it can be a terrifying thing, for he is holy and we are not. The non-holy, the profane, cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. And that is why when God visited his people on Mount Sinai and gave them the law, the people said this. They, they saw the thunder and the flashes they heard the trumpets and they saw the smoke and they were afraid. And they said to Moses, you speak to us. You speak to us. We will listen, but do not let God to speak to us lest we die. He's a holy God and we are not. Now if we pause to put these two images together, I think we get a glimpse of the type of king, a picture of the type of king that John is showing to us. Jesus is the, the king who is God himself visiting his people with salvation and putting an end to war and bringing peace and restoration that extends even beyond Israel to the surrounding nations. He's a king who will put an end to enemies so that his people will never have, never have to fear evil again. But he still doesn't throw the Romans out. What gives with that? Why doesn't he throw the Romans out? I think maybe the Romans aren't the real enemy. John has already given us a picture of what salvation looks like. We saw it in John chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus. Jesus is the king who has power over death and saves his own people from death. If we're going to talk about life and death in John, we need to understand all that John has in mind when he talks about life and death. For John, physical death is almost a metaphor for spiritual death. There's something deeper going on than just being physically alive or being physically dead. There's a spiritual dimension to it. For example, right at the beginning of the gospel, we see that true children of God are counted not according to their physical birth, 
but according to their spiritual birth. John 1.12, but all who did receive him, who received the word, who received Jesus, all who received him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So true children of God are counted not according to physical birth, but according to spiritual birth, which is the same thing we see in his exchange with Nicodemus in John 3. He says, do not marvel that I told you you must be born again. Physical birth counts for nothing. A spiritual birth must occur if one was to experience true life. Perhaps the clearest differentiation between physical life and spiritual life, physical death and spiritual death, comes in in, uh, John chapter 11 in the story, the account of Lazarus. And you can see it right in 11.25. Jesus talking to Martha. says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? True life, which is eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus. It's being in relationship with God. It's being in relationship with Jesus. John 17, 3 in Jesus' prayer. says, this is eternal life. His disciples know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Then we step back. Something much bigger going on with death. Death is the true enemy here. Death is separation from God. In our passage today, Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king who liberates his people from death. He's coming into Jerusalem not as a political liberator, but as the king who liberates his people from death, the one who holds the power over death. Now, if this is true, if this is what John's showing us, we'd expect him to connect this donkey entry back to the story of Lazarus. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. John frames the entire narrative of the donkey entry around the story of Lazarus. Lazarus just keeps popping up, much to the chagrin of the religious leaders. Literally popping up. It is in response to the hype of surrounding this now living, formerly dead man that Jesus enters Jerusalem on the donkey. I think the whole... The whole entry, the whole thing points back to the raising of Lazarus as the type of king that Jesus is. Again, he's the king who liberates his people from death. The Pharisees see this in verse 19. In the crowd in desperation, they say to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, at this point, I think it's maybe helpful to think about different ways of dividing up the world. Uh, we get an example in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says that his gospel is for Jews first, but also for the Greeks. And that's one way to speak of the whole world. There's nobody else. There's us and them. There's Jews and Greeks. So the Pharisees cry out that the world has gone after him. And John accused the Greeks, 1220. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Indeed, the whole world is beginning to go after him. They asked to have an audience with Jesus, but they never actually make it to Jesus. Jesus begins talking about his hour, his hour of glorification, his coming hour. 
But remember what we saw just a bit ago in the prophets. Jesus is the coming king whose rule will extend beyond the borders of Israel to eventually encompass the whole world. Indeed, the world with the coming of the Greeks is even now beginning to come to him, but they can't see him yet. We just wondered why he never talks to the Greeks. He doesn't talk to the Greeks because he can't see him yet. Because if he is the king who is to liberate his people from death, then his coronation ceremony has to occur on the cross. If he's the king who's to liberate his people from death, then his coronation is on the cross. For it is at the cross where victory over death is won. It is at the cross where death is defeated. And that's why we have this triumphal entry connected with his death in verse 24. Look in verse 24 where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In some ways, this is just a truism. If anybody's ever planted a garden, you know you have to put seeds in, and then they die, and then you get fruit from that. That's what the plants grow from. I think he's specifically connecting it here to his death. He's the seed. He's the one who will die. And through his death will come much fruit. So if we ask again, as we did at the beginning, well, what type of king is Jesus? What type of king are we to see him as here? I think we need to acknowledge that the plan all along was for him to die. It's because Jesus is the king who liberates his people from death by dying himself. Jesus is the king who gives life to us by laying his own life aside. He's the liberating king who frees us from death by dying himself. That's what kind of king Jesus is here in John 12. He's the king who goes on to rule from the cross. It's in the self-sacrificial death of Jesus that death is overturned and life is given to those who believe in him. Jesus didn't just start a bloody revolution under a program of nonviolent resistance, nor did he begin a program of military dominance because he's not that kind of king. What Jesus did do, I think, was stage a revolution. He didn't just start it, he staged it. He made it happen. It was completed. Think about it. His life for our life, his blood for our blood, his rewards for our punishment, This is the scandal of the cross. This is the great reversal of fortunes that King Jesus set out to accomplish that Sunday he rode into Jerusalem, humble, sitting on a donkey. There are two implications of this truth that I want to present to you today. Two implications. Jesus really is the liberating king who liberates his people from death by dying himself. Two things we need to think about. The first one comes right from our passage. And you can see it in verse 25 and 26. If, if Jesus has given us true life, then we who have received true life are those who can lay aside our physical life. 
we who have experienced life should submit our physical life to him. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, the language of hating and loving, I think here speaks of preference, not actually hating your life. This isn't about hating the fact that you are alive. It's about priority or preference. It's about where you rank things. Those who prioritize or prefer their physical life in this world ultimately lose their life. But in another great reversal, those who don't prioritize their life in this world, those who recognize the superiority of the life that is to come, that, that even now is, that resurrection life, they're able to lay down control of their lives at the feet of Jesus. Because for them, something better is in store. I think there's a type of hedging our bets or of playing it safe or being overly concerned with our physical life that may suggest that we don't get this principle at all. Last week, Jason talked about the new balanced normal radical. I think I got all the adjectives in there. The new balanced normal radical. It's the idea that the Christian life should be one which looks radical when you compare it to the surrounding culture. This shouldn't make sense. Why would people live like that? It's radical. But when you look in Scripture, it's a pretty normal life. The new, balanced, normal, radical. And we get that same call today. This is what trusting Christ looks like. It's an abandoning of the principle of the priority of the self. It's a surrendering of the illusion of self-control. In his book titled, Don't Waste Your Life. John Piper has a chapter called, Risk is Right, Better to Lose Your Life Than to Waste It. Even his chapter titles are intense. Risk is right, better to lose your life than to waste it. And in that chapter, he makes the argument that safety is a myth and that security is a mirage. We may plan for the future and set aside for retirement. We may put in the hours at work that will get us the promotion or get us noticed by our boss. But in each of these moves, in each of these workings, each of these calculations, there are countless unknowns, there are countless factors that we just can't account for. They're beyond our control. This idea of a a foolproof five-year plan or the foolproof 10-year plan, it's a myth. It's a myth. It's beyond our control. I'm not saying that you should not plan for the future. The Bible talks about those who don't plan for the future. You can read about them in Proverbs. It calls them fools. You need to plan for the future. But in the course of all our planning, we need to beware, lest the security which we seek becomes our God. We say things like, if I can just get the right job, it will save me from all those bumps in the road that other people experience. If I can only put away enough for retirement, it will save me from being broke when I get old. If I can only get into the right relationship, it will save me from being lonely. When we set out to minimize the risk in life, we are inherently putting ourselves at the center. We're evaluating every decision that we make 
based on how it affects us. In contrast to this, from our passage today, we who have received life, we have true life, are to surrender our lives. We who, like our Savior King, who laid down his life for us, are to lay down our lives in service, knowing that the Father, the Creator God, honors those who serve his Son. That's not a small thing. We cannot, like the patriots, if you want to call them that, that we saw here today, we cannot co-opt Jesus for our causes, for our political causes, for our financial causes. He won't be that kind of king. He's a much bigger thing in mind. So because he's the king who liberates us from death by dying himself, we are called to be those who surrender our lives in service to him. The second implication is this. I think knowing this truth, really grasping this, that Jesus is the liberating king who liberates us from death, who gives us life, it should bring us comfort, it should bring us hope. I think of places where Paul speaks about it, like Romans 8, where he gives a contrast between those who are controlled by the sinful nature and those who are controlled by the spirit. It switches the metaphor a bit from life and death, but I think the same thing is in view. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 8. This is beginning in verse 7. He says, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. But you, however, brothers and sisters, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Those who have experienced this new life that we're talking about in John 12, John 11 and 12, those who have experienced this resurrection life are the same as those who, Paul says, are in the Spirit. So how's that comforting? The comfort is this. Formerly, before coming to Christ, you could not please God. Those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. But now... For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. You're in the Spirit, led by the Spirit. You are set free to obedience to God. Jason mentioned we just finished Prelude to Revival a week ago. seems longer. It's a great week. And I heard a number of you give your testimonies. Your account of how you existed in death prior to encountering Christ. And after your encounter with Christ and placing your faith in Him, you were raised to life. We who have trusted in Christ experience that life now. We are liberated from spiritual death, but the reality is that we, f- still, f- we still face temptations. We still face these, these poles. We still war with the sinful nature. But the good news from our passage today is that Jesus is the liberating king who sets us free from death. We don't have to obey the sinful nature. You are not your temptations You are not your former failures. You have been liberated from death and you've been brought into life. The freedom of a relationship with the creator God himself and Jesus his son. In Christ, we can experience a life which is disconnected from the control of the sinful nature. 
You're not controlled by the sinful nature. The Spirit of God lives in you. You've been liberated from death. This is comfort. Comfort from condemnation. And there's hope. There's a hope of a transformation. Paul talks about this idea in Ephesians 2. As for you, as for us, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. Formerly, you were without hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The gospel gives us hope. The gospel gives us comfort that we are no longer enslaved to the sin which separated us from God. The gospel gives us hope. The spirit, that by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God who dwells in us, we can truly walk in the newness of life that we've been called to. Now, we're going out from here, and I know many of the ethos groups are doing something titled Continuing Revival, where we want to revisit these topics, and we want to latch a hold of this. We want change to happen, and we want our hearts to be changed. We want to know God rightly, and we want to be doing his will. We want to be obedient. I think if we're going to experience this continuing revival, we really need to get this peace. We need to not move away from this gospel that Jesus, the liberating king, has set us free from death by dying himself, that he's given us life by laying his life aside. We can't move past that. So this week, as we go out, as we contemplate the cross, let us remember that Jesus is our liberating king who at great cost to himself liberated us from sin and death and brought us into the glorious life which is relationship with him and the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for opening our eyes so that we can see him rightly. Um, We thank and we praise you that we are those who have been brought from death into life. Um, We pray that we would not move past this. Help us to dwell on this and help us to meditate on this. Um, Give us eyes to see Christ so that we may believe in him. We pray this that you'd be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up the morning's offering if the ushers would come forward. This is a chance for us to participate in supporting the work of this church. It's a chance for us to give.